We're, we're in a series on the book of John, and uh, we're at a crucial point, and I, I don't think I can emphasize this enough, how crucial what we're going to be doing now and for the next number of weeks, months, is for us. Jesus has concluded his public ministry and now is beginning to have this intensive time of teaching, discipling his, his disciples, and ex- by example, showing them how to change the world. Now, that's something we, I think everyone here would say, yes, the world needs changing, but how do we do it? And, and we're going to learn in, in the next couple of months. Let me read this passage for you, and then we'll just jump right in. It's from uh, John chapter 13, verses 1 through 5. You can follow along in, in your Bible, or you can look it up on your phone, or you can just listen. I'm going to read it out loud. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress. The devil had already prompted Judas, the son son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Now, we just come out of John chapter 12. Jesus, in John chapter 12, has repeated a lot of the themes that are throughout the first 12 chapters of John. He, he gets up, he cries out to these people. It's his last public message. He's telling them, I am the Savior. He, he's telling them, I am the light. He brings up this theme of light. He brings up again the theme of life, this theme that we've gone over so many times. He says, I came representing, I come representing the Father and bring these words of eternal life. But he throws in a warning too. It's interesting. He says, these are the words of life, but these words will also judge you if you reject them, if you ignore them, if you push them to the side. They will judge you, these very words of life will judge you. It's almost, you know, like, I mean, Jesus understands how all the, he, he knows everything, but it's like a, it's a, this last-ditch plea to listen and a plea to act. And then John 13 through 17 comes, those chapters, and it's Jesus training his disciples, getting them ready for what's to come, teaching them how to go out and serve the world. And this is it. He's teaching them how to change the world. And that's important for us. We need to know how to change the world. One person at a time. How are we going to change this world? When I first became a Christian, there was this guy. His name was Craig McMeekin. He was older than I was. I was just this young kid, you know, that didn't exactly understand what was going on. And he spent time with me. He he said, "Let's, let's meet each week, once a week, you and I. We'll do things together. We'll eat together. We'll play sports together. We'll study the Bible together. We'll pray together. He loved me. He challenged me. He served me. He didn't have to do it. You know, I look back on it. He didn't have to do it. I'm sure he had much better things to do with his time. You know, I'm just this young punk know-it-all. And he spent time with me and loved me. He had an incredible impact on my life. 
Um, I'll never forget him. And so here we have this, this time where Jesus is going to serve and love his disciples. I want to set the scene here. Um, we, we, we just read, you know, this, the, the meal has started. And um, we know from the other Gospels that just before this meal, they started arguing about who was the greatest. And even in Luke, he tells us that in the middle of the meal, the argument broke out again as to who was the greatest. And, and, and that's something we have to understand how they thought. It's, it's, but it's easy because we do it too. It's the world's way of power. They thought Jesus was going to take power. They thought he was going to become the ruler. And then they were going to, because they were his faithful followers, they would be given positions of authority in his kingdom, right? You, you think about this. They're arguing about who is the greatest among them. They, that, they're already assured that they are greater than everyone else. You see what's going on here? Because this is the way our world thinks. So you can imagine them saying, hey, I think, I think I'd like to be Secretary of State. But they're arguing, right? So when I was like, Secretary of State? Ha, huh, maybe Secretary of Interior. You can run some parks, maybe, but you can't run a country. I'll be Secretary of Treasury. You, you can't be dog catcher. Anyway, Judas is a great treasurer. He's got that locked up, right? So they're arguing. This is their mindset. Totally not reading the room. Jesus is talking about dying, and they're like, man, I tell you what, I think I'm his favorite. So we have, uh, I didn't even get to this, just saying the way up is, and this is John 14, 1 through 5. And we have a, this is, this is you know, Michelangelo's The Last Supper. And this is kind of a very, you know, this is a very westernized idea of what the Last Supper was like. All of them sitting at this long table, right? All the things that they didn't do are in this picture, right? Here's more what it would have looked like. It would have, first of all, we know they recline at the table. This is called a triclinium. It's the typical way they ate. It would be three sides. And, and as you look at the picture... The left side, the first person uh, there would be a, a, a high-honored guest. The second person on the left side would be the host. And the third person would be the guest of honor. It'd be the highest honor. So, and it would all happen over on that side. A lot of people, they always put, even if they use this triclinium, they put Jesus in the middle. He wouldn't have been in the middle. He's hosting the meal. He's in charge of the meal. So it would have been the first three person people on the left-hand side that would have been honored guest, the host, and the most honored guest. And we know who was there. We know who was sitting there. In one of the, one of the Gospels, it talks about John leans against Jesus' chest to say something to him. So that means John was the first person on the left-hand side. Right? We know that because they all leaned on their left arm. Even this picture is a little wrong because they all would lean. Your left hand is dirty. Your right hand is clean. You lean on your left arm so it doesn't touch the food, and you eat. So it, everybody's kind of in that same way. The person on the other side of Jesus, we know who that was too because the host would dip bread for the two honored guests. And they say, who's going to betray you, Jesus? And he says, the one I dip bread for, and he hands it to Judas. Think about that. The most honored guest at the Last Supper was Judas. 
That's an amazing thing. There's, that's just mind-blowing. So they're there, they're eating and talking, and their feet need to be washed. Now, this usually was done by the lowest slave. Even some slaves were exempt from washing feet. So often it would be the lowest slave or it would be a young child, a, 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 you know, a little boy, maybe a little girl, somebody, and, and it, because it was considered a dishonorable thing to do. And it was practical and it was symbolic. It was practical because people would often uh, get themselves clean before a meal, but they walked there in open sandals on dusty roads so their feet would be filthy even though the rest of them would be clean. So you had to wash their feet. So that's practical. The symbolic thing, though, is, is that you're honoring your guests by having someone wash their feet. You're elevating them. And you're lowering the washer because they've been picked to do this disgusting thing. It reminds people of where they are in the pecking order of their society. So can you understand now when you think about this? Here they are. They're arguing about who's the greatest. It's a private meal, so there's no slave or young child to be assigned to washing feet, so someone there has to wash the feet. They're arguing about who is greatest. The worst thing you could do to your argument that you're the greatest is to be the foot washer because it lowers you. It dishonors you to be that person, so the feet aren't getting washed. Nothing's happening. They come in. Somebody's supposed to wash their feet. There's no slave to do it, no young kids, so it's got to be one of them, and as they jockey for positions of power, None of them will lower themselves to doing that. There's this huge social. Do you see the dynamic that's going on here at this supper? It's, a, it's an amazing thing when you begin to understand it because this is the way the world operates. The world operates on a pecking order. The other day, I went to a playground, the playground by Mitchell High School with my two young uh, grandsons, and they started playing. There's all these kids. They started playing, and immediately you can see a pecking order gets established. Who's the first one? that all the rest of them follow to whatever they're going to do. We're going to go over here, you know, and we're going to attack people, and it's going to be, we're pirates. And they'd all go running over in line. And then they would decide, okay, now we're going to do, and they would go, and they had this pecking order. Little kids at a playground. And it happens to every one of us. It happens around the office cooler. It happens in classrooms. It happens where you work. When I was... uh, When I was in college one summer, I took a job for the Fairfax County Public Works System. And uh, you soon found out that the college students who were working for the summer were the lowest of the low on the pecking order. Anybody there that was a year-round worker, it didn't matter if they were younger than us. It didn't matter anything about them. They were year-round, so they were above us. And so we got assigned. I remember one time we were cleaning out drainage ditches for Fairfax County. And, uh, and so you'd clean out all the underbrush or whatever, but when you got down to the very middle, it was muck and gross and snakes and yuck. And we'd get there, and they would go, okay, let's see, where are they? Okay, college kid, college kid, go get that middle part. We'll get the higher part where it's dry and it's clean and there's not much underbrush. That's the way it was. It was a pecking order. It's that way in everything. It's easy to criticize the disciples, but we fall into it too. And so... A pecking order is established, and we're going to see Jesus now. you got to understand, as we try to put our feet, try to, try to put ourselves in their feet, in, in their feet, yeah, for foot washing, it, we try to put ourselves into their place. What was going on here? Jesus does something that's radical. He makes a statement. It's breathtaking. It's revolutionary. He says, it's wrong. The system you're following is totally wrong. 
He's going to ruin their way of thinking and judging people. And so we know what he's doing. Let's just look for a moment at the motivation. That's verses 1 through 3. I want to pull that up. Just read it again. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So we see here there's going to be this motivation. We know the disciples' mindset. They're looking for power, position, and authority. And so this is going to give us Jesus' mindset. And I want, to, I want to emphasize something. He knows certain things that make this much more difficult. Let's just talk about those. First of all, in verse 1, he knows it's time to die. He knows he's going to die soon. And so this, this becomes, makes the whole situation more difficult for him. He knew he loved his disciples. They were his own. They were his family, his brothers, his sisters, his closest friend, his children. All the aspects of love are wrapped up in this. And it's interesting because in, he says there in uh, verse uh, 1, at the very end, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. That, that in the Greek, to the end, means to the fullest extent. It has this idea of loving fully and completely. And that if, if, if it were possible to drain love, it would be drained to the last drop. He's going to love them fully and completely. He knew this would cost him. He knew Jesus had agreed to betray him. Think about that. Why did John put that in there? Because it shows us the depth of his love for Judas. He put them in the place of honor. He put him in a place of honor. He washed Judas's feet. He didn't come up to Judas, you know, with the talent. Uh, no, not you. I know what you're doing. I know what you're going to do. You won't get this from me. I won't bow down and wash your feet. And he doesn't do that. He puts him in a place of honor. He washes his feet. And then in verse 3, it said, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, that he had come from God and was returning to God. This is all wrapped up with that. It's time to, he knew it was time. John is almost rewriting verse 1 again to emphasize what's foremost in the mind of Christ. He knew it's time. What must I do in the last hours of my life? What will I do in the last hours of my life? You ever see that where people say, what would you do if you knew you had a month to live? And people come with these, I would travel and I would do this and I would do that. They say, Jesus, what would you do if you knew you only had a day or two to live? I'd wash feet. I'd serve people. I'd love them to the last drop. That's what he's doing. He knew they had uh, bought into the world's idea of service. He's thinking, how can I love them the most? They bought into wielding power from the top. And he was going to flip the whole thing upside down. His idea of power and success goes against everything we've been taught. You've been taught what power and success is, and it's a lie. It's a lie. And Jesus says, here's the truth. I will teach them to humble themselves. And understand, in their mind, this is not humbling yourself. This is humiliating yourself if you wash feet. It's disgusting. 
One time we were cleaning the church. And I said, what can I do to help? And I was told, can you wash toilets? And I was like, I was thinking of shining the podium or that was the idea. I was kind of, give me a little Windex and I'll shine this puppy up. I'll make the, I'll make the cross part look real shiny. Toilets was not what I had in mind. Yuck, right? And so I did the toilets. Some of you are looking at me like, oh, that guy is terrible. No, I did, I did do them. I thought this, but I did them. So it's kind of half good, right? So he loves them even though he's facing this, human, this, this huge pressure that's going on. He's about to die. You know, when you're in pain, when you're in incredible turmoil, that is when it's really hard to serve people. That's when it's really hard to comfort people. It's really hard to love others when you are in tremendous pain, when you are in agony, physical or emotional agony. So like one time I was working in the backyard with a hammer, which right away you know that's a bad situation. Bob and tools equals injury, right? And I'm hammering something, and I hammered my thumb, right? I hammered my thumb. And right then, you know, if, if my wife had told me, hey, can you help me find my, my phone? I'd be like, no, I'm in so much pain. Will you take out the tr- No, I can't lift a thing with any, you know. What happens? When we're in pain, we don't feel inclined to serve, to love. And that's, Jesus is in incredible pain now. He knows what, he knows what they're going to do. He knows what his disciples are going to do. He knows what Judas is going to do. John puts that in. Why? Because John's marveling at the love of Jesus. He's saying, you want love? Look at this. This is the essence of love. He elevates his betrayer. Jesus is washing the feet of someone who's going to get him killed. But there's more. I mean, think about it. He knows He knows Peter and John will fall asleep when he needs them the most. They'll fall asleep. He'll beg them to stay awake, and they'll fall asleep. He knows Peter's going to deny him and curse him. Just tremendous betrayal. He knows that they're all going to run away. They're all thinking we got to save our hides. Forget Jesus. It's, it's every man for himself. He knows they're going to do that. He knows they're going to do that. Can you imagine if you had a friend you thought was a friend of yours, and then you found out that your friend was actively betraying you, stabbing you in the back, and you go, that's okay. I'll just love him. What? That's why, that's why here John is marveling. He's telling us, look at this. He knows they will all hurt him terribly in his weakest moment. And he washes their feet. He humbles himself and he honors them. When you think about this, it's mind-boggling. It's mind-boggling. It's especially hard to love when there's no reciprocation, right? Most people, their love relationships are like business relationships that people have, right? Business relationship, you say, I'm going to buy this widget from you for a certain price, and then I'm going to put it in my store and resell it for a bit more so that I can make money, you can make money. This works out perfect, you know? It's, 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 uh, it's this idea that we have this mutually beneficial relationship. Then what happens? You raise the price of your widget to the point to where no one wants to buy it. 
So I say, well, we're done then. I can't buy from you. That relationship is now severed because it's not mutually beneficial. This is how people do relationships. This is how people do love relationships. This is how people do business relationships. This is how people do church relationships. This is how people do friendships. When my needs aren't being met, I bail. And that's not how Jesus loves. Nothing can change. He loves you because he loves you. In verse 1, it says, having loved, he loved them to the end. Having loved, he loved. Having loved, he loved. It's circular. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, God's talking to the nation of Israel, and he's saying, you know, I didn't want you guys because you're so good. I didn't want you because you're a great nation. You're not a great nation. You're a pretty crappy nation. I I didn't want you because you were so powerful, because you're not powerful. You get your butt kicked all the time in these wars. I, I didn't want you because you're so special or so good or whatever. I wanted you because I decided to love you. I love you because I love you. You can't contribute anything to this. I just love you. Nothing you did nothing you'll do. And for us, it's the same way. He doesn't love you because you're perfect. He loves you because he's perfect. He doesn't love you because you're great. He loves you because he's great. He doesn't love you because you're holy. He loves you because he's holy. And now he's looking, he's looking at the disciples. He's looking at us. He's saying, come on, follow me. Be my disciple. I will never forsake you because I took the forsakenness. You will always be loved. This kind of love, this is what drives him. This is what empowers him. The question then becomes, where does this kind of love come from? And it's interesting. I read a couple of different books. Theologians for for 2,000 years have generally had one answer a lot. When faced with this question, there's been one answer that comes through all the time. One word, Trinity. Why? Because if you're like me, the doctrine of the Trinity just hurts your head. It's just hard to figure out. This whole idea of one God and within the being of God, there are three persons. They've been loving each other throughout eternity. How does that work? I don't know. It's not something we can fully grasp. But just think about this. If there was just the Father throughout eternity, no Son, no Spirit, just the Father, how would he know love? Because the key to love is you, are, you freely give it, and it's freely returned. That's what love is. Freely given, freely returned, reciprocated, just love. And he wouldn't. But Jesus loved because he was in this loving relationship with the Father and the Spirit and him, the Son. What does it mean to love someone? It means to delight in them. It means to glorify them. It means to lift them up. It means to compliment them. It means to give yourself to them. Throughout eternity, the Father and the Son and the Spirit were giving and glorifying, loving, and serving each other so that the essence of God, and we learn this in 1 John, at the core, God is love. And Jesus came to earth and died for us out of his great love for us. And so, the motivation, then I want to talk about the foundation. Verse 4, so he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist, and after that he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. See, you can be motivated to do something, but there needs to be this foundation that follows through on this, that makes it happen. 
And what we have here is a deliberate act that is socially jarring. It is deliberately offensive. It is a sign of who he is. He was not so great that he couldn't humble himself for us. And I just want to, this is, I bring this up a lot, but it's just such a beautiful passage. Philippians chapter 2. So in your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Now, let me just pop in here real quick because I think this is kind of cool. Philippians is one of the earliest books written. We get to this passage, and everyone agrees Paul is quoting some sort of creed. He's quoting an early church creed that had been in before he wrote Philippians. So we're talking about something that came into his existence not long after Christ died, very quickly after Christ died, they wrote a creed saying, this is who we are. This is what we believe. So here it is. Think of this. This is a voice from a person who worshiped just like us on a, on a Sunday morning around 33 to 35 AD. And he says, let's, let's think like Christ, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, He made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. There's the foundation that flowed out. Jesus comes to this situation. They're at at the meal. They're eating. They're arguing about who's the greatest. And Jesus says, no one has washed feet. I, I do it. I'll show them this is how we serve. I will wash their feet. He's not so great that he couldn't humble himself for us. He was so great that he gave up his greatness for us in love. So we have this conundrum with Jesus. He makes these, uh, he has this incredibly high status. He's God. And he has this incredibly humble and low behavior. He makes these incredible claims. He says, before Abraham was, I am. He made a deliberate claim to divinity. Took the, took the name of Yahweh, the holiest names that Jews knew and would not even say because it was too holy to pronounce. And he said, that's me. You got it. It's, it's all me. He said, to know me is to know God. He said, to see me is to see God. He said, to receive me is to receive God. He said, I am the son of God. In that culture, when a son came of age, he became equal with his father. Jesus when he said, I'm the son of God, everybody's like, you're claiming to be God. And what did they do? They pick up, they picked, they understood it. This wasn't some obscure, weird thing that nobody understood. They picked up stones and said, let's kill this guy. And so there's this conundrum. He is so high, he makes these claims to greatness, and yet he is so sensitive and so low. I love this. He ate with outcasts, prostitutes, and tax collectors. And that got the conservatives really mad, right? He ate with the Pharisees. That got the libs mad. He touched a leper. He associated women in very close and intimate ways. That broke all the rules. He got the religious people mad. He was an equal opportunity offender. I love that. Everybody was mad at Jesus for something. That's why, and we talked about this a little bit, when they talk about they're going to kill him, who gets together? The Pharisees, the ultra-conservatives, and the Sadducees, the ultra-liberals, they found common ground in one thing. Jesus needs to die because he offends us. In our day, we're told you should be tolerant of everyone except the intolerant people. And Jesus went beyond that. He's tolerant of the intolerant. He's tolerant of everyone. 
I read this somewhere. I can't remember exactly because I copied it and forgot to write down the guy's name. He's infinite highness and infinite lowness. He's tenderness without weakness. He's boldness without harshness. He's humility with confidence. He's conviction with sensitivity. He's truth with love. He's power with winsomeness. He's integrity without the rigidity. He's passion without prejudice. He makes these high claims, and he had humility, and we have to have both. Because if you just make high claims alone, you're just another religious quack. And if you're just humble alone, you're just another teacher that says, please, everybody love each other. But you put those two together, and you have divinity, the power to change people's hearts for eternity. And his divinity and his humanity are the foundation of this revolutionary act that he's going to do. We're going to look deeper into it next week. That's your hook. Come back next week. It's going to get even better. But in the meantime, there's a quick application. There's more than three, but I just have three here. First of all, we are to be peacemakers. As followers of Jesus Christ, we are to be the peacemakers in our society, respectful and kind and courteous to those who oppose us. We tend to demonize people. And Jesus says, nope. That's the wrong way. Jesus washes the feet of someone who's not just against him, but he's washing the feet of someone who is actively working to kill him. Respectful, patient, and humble. Notice, you'll see this next week, Jesus does call him out. Jesus says, he's gonna, you're going to betray me. Go do it. He calls him out, but he prefaces that with love. And honor. He speaks the truth with love. Truth bathed in humility. So the first thing to think about is we are to be peacemakers. The second thing to think about is that Jesus now is our example. He's our example of this new way of greatness. The disciples were all about greatness. He just turned it upside down. Because what is greatness? Is, is, it, is greatness shows you, it's shown by you being served by others? Or is greatness shown by being the servant of others? And Jesus brings that out. He shows us what to strive for. Selfless service and humility is true greatness. He sits in the highest place, and yet he descended to the lowest place. Foot washing is a symbol of what's to come. He's going to give up his life, the ultimate degradation for the sake of others. This is not our world's way of power. And brothers and sisters, we have got to reject the world's way of power and stop admiring it. It does not lead to life. It does not lead to life. We are to love, not engage in cost-benefit relationships. We are to love. Not just, not just a, a, some, some sort of display but truly endeavor to love people and watch how that changes them. Jesus totally ruins this, eye, this, this idea of cost-benefit relationships. He, he serves us. He says, I will glorify you. I will give you fullness of life. I will give you joy. I will fill your heart. I will live with you. I will never leave you. And this continues into eternity. There's an interesting verse in Luke 12. We're running out of time. Luke 12, 37, where Jesus talks about coming back for his people. 
And what does he say? He says, and when the master comes back, he will sit his people at the table, he will put on the clothes of a servant, and he will serve him. Jesus says, I'm going to take you to heaven with me, and I'm going to serve you. Because it doesn't end here. It's who he is. The cost-benefit relationship disappears under the weight of his glory. He is to us a friend, a lover, a brother, a father, a mother, a shepherd, a king. When we begin to grasp that, what does it matter what people think of me? I'm the richest man in the world. I'm rich for eternity. This is what we need. This is what our hearts ache for. This is like those times, you know, when you're in your life and you just feel like things, maybe things aren't going so great. Maybe they're going okay, but you just, something's off. Something's off. Something's not quite right. And Jesus says, here's what it is. It's me. Let me fill that offness. Let me fill that space. I'm your friend. I'm your lover. It sounds weird to say that, but he phrases it that way so many times. I'm your father, I'm your mother, I'm your shepherd, I'm your king. I'm all these aspects of a loving relationship for you in your life. And that's what we need more than anything else in the world. It begins begins with a decision we make. I'm going to become a child of God. I see that I'm a sinner. I see I need a savior. Jesus is the, I'm going to, he's the savior. I'm going to accept him. And then it says he becomes part of us. He lives in us. The Holy Spirit is with us now to guide us and direct us. And the key thing is, because this, this stuff we just talked about is impossible. It's impossible to love that way, except for one thing, the Holy Spirit. God says the Holy Spirit can empower us to live beyond our abilities, to live the life that Jesus lived, to love the way that Jesus loved, to serve the way that Jesus served. If you have ever been served in that way, that selfless way, it's life-changing to see a human being do that. I pray for Craig McMeekin all the time. Haven't seen him in 40 years, but he changed my life with selfless service. Because if I ever tried to hang out with a kid, how I was, I'd be like, That is one of the (laughs) non-elect. That one has not got a chance. You know, I just write me off. And he didn't. He persevered. And uh, God used it. God can use you that same way to impact people's lives for eternity. What a great privilege that is. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth of your word. Lord, that you present to us through your son, Jesus, this idea of greatness and this idea of service that goes against everything we've been taught for our whole lives. Help us, empower us to begin, maybe in small ways, maybe in big ways, to begin to live this out and to see the great joy that comes with following you in this manner. Lord, we thank you that we have the opportunity to do this. In Jesus' name, amen.